0: All right. 321. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Eric Kurlander, and he is writ- wrote a book in 2017. The title of that book, which I just finished today, is Hitler's Monsters, a Supernatural History of the Third Reich, published in 2017. Uh, Mr. Curl or Dr. Kurlander, has a B.A. in History from Bowdoin College, M.A., and Ph.D. in Modern European History from Harvard University. He's also published many academic Uh, writings in a a number of journals, which you can see at uh, his website where he's working right now is Stetson University in Florida. He's also written uh, a number of other books. One is The Price of Exclusion, Ethnicity, National Identity, and the Decline of German Liberalism, 1898-1933, published 2006. Another was Living with Hitler, Liberal Democrats in the Third Reich, published 2009, and with Monica Black, Revisiting the Nazi Occult Histories, Realities, and Legacies published 2015. But uh, this book was fantastic. Just much, so much information. As somebody who's kind of read a lot about Nazi Germany, this really uh, enlarged my understanding of what led up to kind of the horrors of World War II. So a really fascinating book. So Dr. Kurlander, for people who may not be familiar with you, can you talk a little bit about your background and what led you to writing Hitler's Monsters, a supernatural, supernatural history of the Third Reich?
1: Thank you, and and thank you, William, for having me on the show. I I, I always appreciate um, interest in, in my work and my research and in some of these big questions, which um, which undergirded uh, my my reasons for doing this book. Which was your first question? So that's a good question. Um, so obviously, as an academic historian, I was aware of some of the. I mean, I read comic books as a kid, right? Captain America and. Um, Thor and I was aware of these putative connections in popular culture between Nazism and the occult, um, but it was not a a main kind of mainstream area of study when I went to graduate school. Um, however, I had a colleague who who researched the occult in Germany um, through 1933, and then finally she added a last chapter to her book. Her name is Corinna Tritel on the Third Reich. And so I was aware that people were starting to, um, to pay closer attention to this, but I had other interests, as you've mentioned, German liberalism and the collapse of Weimar democracy. And when I was thinking about my third monograph, like big research project, I'm like, you know, there still hasn't been, at least not since Nicholas Goodrick Clark. And he stopped in 1933. Right. And my colleague, I just mentioned who only had that one chapter There hasn't been a a comprehensive um, study of occult, the supernatural, more generally, border science, um, paganism, what have you, um, not only before but during the Third Reich. So that was a question I kind of had, which many of us had who were in my field, I suppose, but weren't quite ready to research. And then really was, oh, I'm going to write a book about here's what people are saying and here's the reality. So a lot of it was going to talk about some of the popular histories or pseudo histories that are out there. Excuse me one second. I keep hearing some people in the background. It's kind of distracting. Okay. Sorry.
0: Is it coming from my audio?
1: Yes. Okay. Hold on. You're way, you're way too
0: loud. You're way too loud. Can you go into the other room?
1: Yeah. All right. Sorry yeah, about that. I'm sorry about that. Teaching at home for most, much of the year. But the other thing you can do is you can turn off your um, microphone when I'm speaking.
0: That's a good idea. I think okay. we're we're gonna solve it. So I, let's see if this improves. I apologize, my son. Apologies. All right. So do you let me know where to start again? Well, um I think you were talking about your interest and in why some other historians stopped at 1933 and why you were continuing on kind of looking at the a cult from a more scholarly viewpoint.
1: Yes. So um I I went in kind of open minded, as I suppose you should be as an historian or social scientist, saying it it seems like there's more of a story there from the preliminary reading I've done of some mainstream historians, Georg Mosa, Fritz Darren, and others who who have noted the, the mythical, uh the paganist, in some ways esoteric. Um, roots of Nazism, Nicholas Goodrick-Clark. But I really went in with an open mind that I might find that most of what is drifting through kind of popular culture is fictional. And so I I did initially, beyond reading a lot of the academic work that touched on Nazi intellectual history, I kind of skimmed through Trevor Ravenscroft and, uh, what is it, Powell's and uh, Barry's. Yeah, right. Yeah. Was it the,
0: the Sword of Longinus, I think it was?
1: Well, so I think it's called the uh, Morning of the Magicians. Magicians right uh, but, you know, it's, it, it's it's clearly not academic history. These people are actual occultists. Um, but um, I just wanted to see what is it, again, that people keep citing, claiming it, it's true. And that gives me a sense of the themes that I might investigate when I go to the archives. And when I first went to the archives, I think in 2010 or 11 for a preliminary view of the Federal Archives in Germany, I actually started to find putting in keywords like astrology, parapsychology, uh, divining, of course, in, in German, right? or um, whatever these words were, you know, um, biodynamische um, Wirtschaftweisen, biodynamic agriculture, anthroposophy. I found all sorts of files on this, including ones that my colleague Corinna Tritel hadn't yet looked at. Um, and I thought, wow, you know, there's a lot here maybe I can move away from here's what the popular history says. And here's what actually happened and make it more about this is if we, if we look at what's going on in the third Reich from a supernatural perspective, things that are not based in material reality or science, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Or social science. I'll just report on that. And so that kind of changed my perspective a bit and I found more and more material. And then the question was, well, how, how much can this really explain? Is this just a sidelight? It's not really that important to explain. For example, Nancy Reagan visited an astrologer. Very few of us would say Reagan's uh, two terms were defined by supernatural thinking. You might not like Reagan's policies, but, um, you know, James Baker's a rational guy, right? We, no one would try to make that argument. So it's, there's a difference between having a, a high-ranking person or two who visits an astrologer, and claiming that supernatural thinking influenced um, the rise to power, Nazi ideology, and policy. So that was the next step, right? Could I make that claim? Is that an empirical claim? And as you can see in the book, there are places where I do think it explains things, and other places where I say it doesn't, right? Right. And so that, that gives you a sense of my kind of intellectual journey into researching this topic.
0: And it's, it goes very deep. The starting and the beginning of the Nazi party, you know, before the pre-clu cursors were very distinct. And I think you made an argument, and I think you proved that argument, that groups like the Thule Society and some of these other groups did come together, coalesce into the, the NSDAP, or what we call the Nazis. Can you talk a little bit about that, these ideas that preceded the beginning of the party?
1: Yeah, right. So I have that whole chapter on the 19th century, basically, and all these ideas floating around Central Europe, Germany, and Austria, um, especially in the second half of the 19th century, which I kind of divide into three clusters, right? The, what I call border um, science, which is our scientific doctrines that can't really be proven or reproduced in a lab, yet people who claim to be scientists claim to be practicing these sciences like pendulum dousing or parapsychology or biodynamic agriculture or world ice theory, And then um, on the other side, you have kind of purely faith-based or religious-oriented traditions, what I call folkish religion or Indo-Aryan religion. It's this odd mix of kind of uh, Aryanized um, Christianity with the Jewish uh, antecedents taken out and pure paganism, Nordic religion, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, all kind of Merge together, which by the end of the 19th century is a very strong tradition in many parts of Europe, but especially Central Europe. And then in the middle, you have these kind of well-known occult doctrines that unite elements of both, right? Like uh, theosophy, anthroposophy, Ariosophy, that claim to be able to bridge the gap between science, I'd argue in most cases what they were talking about is science was really border science, right? Like parapsychology. Right. And religion, and when they talked about religion, it was almost never traditional Christianity. It was some kind of bolderized version of Hinduism mixed with Nordic paganism, right? Depending on which of those occult doctrines you subs- to which you subscribe. So I, I'm arguing that was already very popular in Germany, Austria, parts of France, parts of Russia, Great Britain, United States in the 1890s. And then the question is, does that have any link to the early Nazi Party? And as you're suggesting, um, in the course of the you know the first two decades of the 20th century, a lot of these occult groups start to become politicized, like the German Order or the Hammer Association, which is their kind of political wing. And some of their members go on to found uh, other chapters during World War One, and one of those chapters in 1918 merges with another occult group called the Thule Society, right, in Munich. Mm-hmm. And that group, while they're still talking about dowsing and, you know, astrology, also spent a lot of their time talking about how terrible the Jews are, and how the Jews are all socialists or capitalists or something else terrible, or they're running the Catholic Church, or they're Freemasons, and they're trying to destroy Germany, and, you know, steal all of the you know, blonde, blue eyed women and destroy the race. And they're coming up with all these bizarre ideas, which, you know, were already there in the 19th century. And that group that's meeting in the Four Seasons Hotel, the end of World War I, starts to attract people like Hans Frank, the main lawyer of the Nazi party in the 1920s, ended up being the guy in charge of Poland. Rudolf Hess, who's a student in Munich at the time, later deputy fuhrer, Dietrich Eckert. There, there's some question about whether they were actual members of the Thule Society or they just show up occasionally for lectures and debate, but they were showing up. And then within months of this, the so Bottendorf, the guy who was in charge because he's incompetent as a political leader, is also editing an Astrology Journal, right? right. Um, some of the members of the Thule Society are like, you know what, this isn't going to get us anywhere. Plus he then screws up and a bunch of the far right people who are planning to assassinate the Jewish socialist, uh, basically prime minister of Bavaria, they screw up, they get caught and they get executed. So he's blamed for that too. So a number of these people are saying, we don't really want to hang out with the Thule Society anymore, but they like a lot of the same ideas. So what they do is they form something called the German workers' circle to kind of practically get workers, normal people to support their ideas. And that's Karl Haar and, and, um, Anton Drexler who formed that while still members of the Thule Society. And then a few months later, when they really get sick of uh, Sabotendorf in January 2000, uh, January 1919, they formed the German Workers Party as a separate party, which still has a lot of these Thule people in it, like Drexler and Haar, but is now going to be an independent party. Trying to get average Germans to support their ideas. And that is going to be the party that Hitler later joins, and Dietrich Eckert, and Hess, and Himmler, right? Which will later call itself the National Socialist German Workers' Party. So that was quick. That was three or four minutes. But it gives you a sense of how all these ideas that were kind of wafting about in Central Europe didn't necessarily make you a fascist per se, were also very popular in this group called the Thule Society and how that Thule Society did provide some of the initial ideology and um, personnel for what would become the Nazi Party.
0: Right. And I I think you in your book, you showed that some of these groups, they all kind of came together and coalesced into the NSDAP. The Thule was one of them, but Hitler eventually would, his Mein Kampf, he would dedicate it, I think, to Eckhart, right, Dietrich Eckhart?
1: Yeah, I believe, uh, I I think it's dedicated to Eckhart. Eckhart was his mentor. Mentor, right, yeah.
0: And so Eckhart was kind of an occultist as well. He knew a lot about the Indo-Aryan mysticism. Can you talk in the volkish esoteric stuff? Can you explain why Germany was so interested in this, this kind of Tibetan farther away uh, place than Germany? It seems like their, their, their view toward East to me was very interesting.
1: Right. So for, uh, yeah. So Eckhart wouldn't have been, I wouldn't call him a practicing occultist, but he was really interested in, Um, this Indo-Aryan theory and this Indo-Aryan theory, you know, when I started doing this research 2008 or nine say what you will about the, the right in Europe or America, but they were still relatively focused on things like low taxes, you know, the tea party, what have you Um, we've seen with QAnon and some things the last four or five years, a resurgence of a belief in the same kind of stuff that was popular in Germany and France and parts of Britain um, back then. So I want to be careful about saying that this is a peculiarly German thing. The idea, for example, that there were ancient aliens that that came um, to Earth potentially at some point in prehistory and mated with humans, and that somehow created a master race that was in charge of Atlantis or Hyperborea or Thule civilization. And then somehow there was a giant flood, maybe blocks of ice or some kind of biblical flood. And the, the, the people who hadn't been intermixing racially, who survived kind of went to Tibet to preserve their religion and race. Um, that, that idea, um, is not unique to Germany at that time. That was popular in a lot of science fiction circles. Um, in in that period and has made a comeback in the far right in Europe today and in America today. So I just want to say that there's a, since the 19th century, this kind of alternative supernatural view of human civilization, which focuses on Indo-Aryan superiority, some part of Northern India that's spread out. And then in various ways, there's different iterations of this Atlantis, ancient aliens, a super race with, with, um, with parapsychological powers or insights. So it was not unusual for people, kind of quasi educated white men in small towns and rural areas, right? Mm-hmm. In that period, who were bored with Christianity, traditional Christianity, didn't like going to church anymore, but also didn't really like modern science. It was too complicated, too boring, too materialist, lacked spirituality, right? You think mm-hmm. about some of the things Jordan Peterson talks about today. You know, how we're too focused on materialism and we've lost the spirit. Well, that, that was the mentality that a lot of people had. And all I note is that in Germany at that time, the people with that mentality who wanted to get away from the materialist view of the world and, and left-wing Marxist materialism and, and liberal proceduralism tended to also be far-right, anti-Semitic, racist nationalist and militarist. Not everyone who practiced yoga or was interested in ancient aliens was a frustrated white man or veteran who hated republicanism and pluralism and multiculturalism and wanted to resuscitate an ancient Aryan civilization, but many of them did. And that's what I try to show in the period around, you know, the late 19th to the you know, first, third of the 20th century, that there's something happening in Germany where it's not just fun stuff you listen to on the radio or reading comic books. They're actually meeting at mountains and and having quasi-Masonic rituals and tracing people's, you know, Aryan ancestry back to the 18th century and wearing robes and coming up with swastika symbols or throwing on books. And they're starting to believe this stuff. Right, it's one thing to read Captain America comic books. It's a little more dangerous when you actually think there were ancient aliens and there was a superior race, and racial mixing is going to undermine your economy and your culture. And and again, so I'm just trying to say that this these ideas that were percolating in lots of parts of Europe, um, and in some ways parts of India and Japan, there were certain theories of civilization that were similar, right? That um, mm-hmm. that does have a correlation with this is one of the arguments of my book, people who also supported far-right or fascist politics. And then I kind of traced that through the Nazi party.
0: Right, because, I mean, so there there's a certain segment of that society was definitely kind of a new age, maybe not the right term, but definitely interested in that, what you call, you know, border science and supernatural ideas, and opposed to the other parties that were more Christian or more Protestant or Catholic, it seems like. There were um,
1: two, two kinds of parties. This is really important because, um, uh, I want to, I want to be very careful because there are a lot of conservative Christians who are often frustrated at the way that, you know, conservatism is linked to fascism. And I want to point this out. Really traditional Christians in that period, Catholics who went to church were not as enamored of these ideas as kind of lapsed Protestants or lapsed Catholics, meaning, um, it was an alternative not only to modern secular science, which is a, would be a typical liberal or left-wing critique of the right, right? That they don't really embrace science, facts, data, complexities of reality. They're always looking for some faith base. But at the same time, these people were, were not terribly accepting of traditional Christianity either. So it was some kind of attempt to find an alternative to both to both traditional religion and modern science and social science. So yes. Um, now Protestants were much more vulnerable than Catholics because Protestants then and now can determine their own relationship to God. They, they continually break off splinter, leave their church, go to another church. As long as they say they accept Jesus in any way they want, even a blonde blue eyed Jesus that supposedly wasn't Jewish, which is what right. a lot of these people are arguing, They can claim they're Christian. So the one thing I also want to be careful about, I'm not saying that everyone who claimed to be Christian was opposed to these ideas. In fact, many Protestants, actual practicing Protestants, were willing to discard the Old Testament and claim that Jesus was some reincarnation of Balder, the Nordic God, and he was blonde and he wasn't really Jewish. And these these kind of odd ideas that late 19th century racist theologians throughout out there. And that people like Himmler and Hitler then picked up on. Right. Right. Positive Christianity. Well, that means Christianity part without the Judaism. (laughs) Right. Their
0: version of it. I mean, and that's kind of like seems to be a trend within that Nazi party is turning everything in the outside world into this kind of Nordic Aryan perception. It seems like that was very common for them. Um, can you talk about uh, Hitler and Schurtel? He was you, you mentioned the name Shertel pops up a number of times and uh, I, I found that, that fascinating that Hitler was reading kind of a magical tome
1: right, so we can't we can't confirm a hundred percent that he read it, but what we know is it was in his library because this, a, a historian journalist named Tim Ryback who went into Hitler's, wrote a book on Hitler's library, he actually went to the holdings in the Library of Congress said, what did he have?" you know, in his library when the American army kind of came in and appropriated all this stuff. And one of the books, which had, I think, 60 something um, annotations, um, was this book by Aaron Schertel, published in 23 or 24. So at some point after that, and Hitler was already becoming well known because of the Beer Hall putsch, right? Hmm. He sent it to Hitler. It seems like he probably sent it in the 20s um, and dedicated it to him. And Hitler clearly didn't throw it out. He kept it in his Library And there are all these annotations. And so you, given that circumstantial evidence, it's unlikely someone else had access to his library after he got a book dedicated to him. He didn't buy it in his bookstore and made those comments. So that's why I, I argue in the book, it's likely Hitler's own, um, annotations. And if that's true, and again, with the qualification that we don't know a hundred percent, they're from Hitler, the things he underlined, um, are fascinating because this is a book by an open parapsychologist who believed in so-called magic, right? Mm. I call that section of my, the chapter, Hitler's magic. I I do not argue that Hitler himself believed in magic. Um, There are again, crypto historians who claim Hitler practiced magic and met with Gergiev. And there's no evidence for that. What Hitler clearly did like a lot of Americans today, right? He read, popular psychology at that time that included parapsychology for insights on how to manipulate people right mm-hmm. or manage crowds um, and he clearly found this book fascinating because whether if you take the the supernatural language out it's all about how do you appeal to groups of people and and manipulate them now Sherald will believe there's actually magical energies that that great shaman a uh, great shaman can use or wield we don't know for sure that Hitler believed that. What we do know is he read it, and was it was clearly one of the things he was looking at when he was developing his propaganda and his approach to, um, you know, large propagandistic um, uh, campaigns. Right. So, mm-hmm. so that's why I found it really interesting. It's an overt use, if if indeed those are his annotations, of a parapsychological book. Um, to think through ways of manipulating crowds. And why would he do that? Well, as Alfred Rosenberg noted in one of the archival documents I found, and Alfred Rosenberg did not like the occult. He claimed to see it as a rival ideology to Nazism. He nonetheless noted that a lot of the people who like our party, we have to admit, were really into astrology and parapsychology and the occult and frost giants. So if Hitler recognized that, why wouldn't he try to tap into that? right? In the same way you argue politicians now who don't secretly believe that Hollywood liberals drink blood have no problem saying, well, we don't know that they're not drinking blood and and this is going to feel you bad because if that appeals to even 10% of your constituency, that's 10% you just got to go out to the polls. So I'm not arguing that Hitler actually believed all the stuff in the book, but he clearly found it as a bridge, an intellectual bridge to some of his constituents, who were desperate and angry and had a lot that was frustrating going on in their lives and were seeking some kind of new faith, new leader. Right. And I
0: think you mentioned a number of times in your book, like that was a very turbulent era. So I think that you kind of show that this could be an outlet for those people going through post-war, hyperinflation, uh, Great Depression events.
1: Absolutely. Uh, in fact, this is a good moment to say, I, I come up, it took me a while to come up with this concept, but what I argue is, is then and now every society is something I would call a supernatural imaginary. It's this kind of amorphous um, set of beliefs and practices and ideas that are not coherent enough to call a religion or a or an ideology that you draw on to make sense of the world, right? If you don't accept science and math and data, right? You need some way of, and what, what I'd argue is that supernatural imaginary gets triggered and people resort to it more in times of crisis and confusion. So it's always there, but when everything's destabilized and the normal authorities don't seem to be as authoritative anymore, the economists seem to be wrong. The, the people who say democracy is going to work appear to be wrong. The, the media seems to be lying to you. Then you start looking for these alternatives that are floating around, usually on the fringe, and they can become mainstream. And so I'm not saying that Germans were all clueless and in normal times were like, yeah, I don't trust what I read in the newspaper. I'm going to go ask my astrologer. But they were already interested in some of those ideas. And when everything broke down and you can't get enough to eat and you can't fight a job and the world seems to be collapsing around you, these became more attractive ways of – making sense of reality. Right. Right.
0: And I mean, I think that's it. I think that that might've been one of the reasons why the Nazi party had that, you know, growth right there after the great depression. Um, One of the oddities and what I found in your book, which was counterintuitive for me was that the third Reich actually, once Hitler came into power, had, they weren't fully accepting the occult. You, your chapter is third Reich's war on the occult. Can you talk about the kind of counter occult, uh, ideas that were there after, after they came to power, after the Nazis
1: came to power? Right. Well, and first of all, there's a long tradition. So Hitler himself makes fun of occultists in Mein Kampf. He has that famous line where he said, our movement's not going to get anywhere if we're hanging out with uh, wandering scholars clothed in bear skins, which again, when I started doing the research, I'm like, that's so silly. Who would run around in public wearing a bear skid or an animal skid? But the, they did back then, right? That was a way of getting in touch with nature, berserkers, werewolves. I talk about in the book how, how the far right fetishized werewolves as a kind of. A, and then look what happened, you know, January 6th, you've got a guy, literally a shaman, wearing. Yeah. Pants. So he told
0: me he wasn't doing a chaos magic ritual. That exactly. was
1: so the far right in, in Europe has kind of played off of this idea of a paganism, werewolves. Bearskin. I mean, Hitler himself was mocking it, right? Like, really? How are we going to come to power with normal people if we've got guys doing seances and talking about pen? At the same time, as I tried to show throughout, Hitler recognized where his bread was buttered. He was not. He could not change his constituency and the time in which he lived. So you manage it, including people like Himmler and Hess, who actually believed a lot of this stuff, right? These are his Right. right and left hand men. So it's not Hitler couldn't unless he wanted to become a liberal or a socialist or a traditional Christian conservative, there was no way for him to abandon that way of thinking. It was about managing it. But when they came to power, some of the Nazi leaders for, for, I would argue, two different reasons wanted to do more than manage it. They wanted to control or eliminate a lot of this thinking. One is there were people in the Nazi party, a minority who were against Any kind of sectarianism, literally when, when Reinhard Heydrich, that Gestapo sectarian for him meant any belief system that isn't just being loyal to Hitler, right? I don't care if you're a Jehovah's witness, a Mormon or an anthroposoph, right? Mm -hmm. That means you're not loyal to Germany and Hitler who is himself a kind of religious leader. And we need to eliminate your organization and get, you need to get with the program. That was one reason they moved against the occult. The other is more complicated, and this has to do with the fact that you had a lot of Nazi leaders who believed in supernatural thinking or recognized how powerful it was and really wanted to manage it and not have it be out there doing what it wanted, presenting alternative readings of, let's say, the stars, that maybe Hitler isn't the guy who should be in charge. Reading Nostradamus against the grain. So if you look at a lot of the people who are critical, they weren't saying that the only way to understand the world is through material, social scientific analysis and science. They were saying, these guys are wrong and we're right. And so those are the two reasons that a lot of, almost all Nazi leaders, in fact, at some point were like, we need to manage the occult and these pagan groups and the Masons. But what happened in reality is you saw... For about four years, they don't really do much of anything. In fact, Hitler even like sends his greetings to a major astrological conference in 35, I think. And some Nazis are actually frustrated. And some professional debunkers who like want to show how magicians and magic and the supernatural is, is not real. They're frustrated. And then in 37, what happens is you get um, a critical mass of the SS, the people who are in charge of the propaganda ministry, the education ministry, all saying that we really need to control public opinion better, especially because a bunch of these debunkers are trying to embarrass the Third Reich and say, look, you guys believe in the occult and all these other things. Mm -hmm. There's this big internal debate in the summer of 37. And the end result is Himmler and a few other leaders say, okay, we're going to go after the kind of Jewish boulevard palm readers who are just trying to steal your money, but the scientific occultists can still be practicing what they're doing because what they're doing is science. And in fact, that's when the SS starts recruiting and other organizations, occult and border scientific uh, scientists, right, scholars, Mm -hmm. and working with them or having them perform experiments or Publishing some of their books, so it's not much of a crackdown. The real crackdown, which also only lasts a few weeks, is after Hess goes to Britain. Right. Everyone knows that Hess is into everything. He sleeps with magnets up and uh, above and below his bed. He's homeopathic medicine. He starts these institutes where he tries to hire open occultists. Um, He has his own astrologer. I mean, Himmler was similar. And that's all fine as long as Hess is a loyal Nazi. But when he goes, crash lads in Scotland, looks like he's about to betray the Third Reich. Goebbels, Rosenberg, and Heydrich all go to Hitler and say, See, you know why he did that? His astrologer. And Hitler's like, Okay, yeah, crack down on those people. It's time. By the way, I point out that in the chapter, even while Hitler's saying that, he's intervening on not doing very much. And within a few months, a lot of the cultists who are arrested or let go. And by 1942, as I show in later chapters, Himmler has hired a bunch of them again to do research for him. So it's a very desultory and uneven crackdown, but it does show you that it's not a one-to-one relationship. It's not like every Nazi sitting there going, oh yeah, I believe every crazy thing I read you know, in an astrology journal. They just are very aware, as I argue throughout, whether it's pragmatic or ideological, that supernatural thinking is very popular and that it needs to be managed, controlled and exploited, but it's never going to be completely eliminated. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And these guys who were at the top of the Nazi party, their administrative bodies, you know, like you said, they were drawing in these occultists and Himmler was trying to make an alternative to Christianity. Can you talk about this book, Lucifer's Court? I was not familiar with that. And also the Nazi, positions towards Christianity because I've had these arguments with other people but I, I really treasure your opinion of the Nazis view of Christianity right
1: yeah chapter six so that's that that chapter is kind of all on all about the religious um, kind of ide- the ideology and attitudes towards religion of the Third Reich and how these these longer term traditions played played a role right um, and I do call it Lucifer's court because that was a pretty interesting entree um, so we'll start with that. Um, So this guy named Otto Ron, who does occasionally show up in the pseudoscientific crypto occult literature, right? Ron is now someone people have heard of. Um, He was a kind of obscure amateur archaeologist, philologist um, in the 20s and early 30s, who went to France to study what he thought were the um, most recent iteration of an ancient Indo-Aryan religion in the Pyrenees maybe around Montségur that was preserved by the Templars or the Cathars, these, you know, heretical sects in the 13th century in France. Mm. Um, And he worked with French occultists who were also interested in researching stuff in those caves. Um, He was not openly fascist. He was almost certainly gay. Uh, There's no reason to believe in 1932 or 33 he was terribly supportive of Nazism, to come back to my point that not everyone who was into the occult, you know, was, uh, I mean, there were Jewish occultists, right? right. But, but Willigut, the this very open occultist in the SS, who designed the, you know, death's head insignia for the SS and was Himmler's advisor, he read an article about his first book, which is basically the search for the Holy Grail, mm-hmm. uh, which is linked to this ancient, supposedly Indo-Aryan religion. Um, in one of the newspapers, I think the Frankfurter Zeitung, which is kind of like the New York Times or Washington Post of Germany. And he said, well, this guy's interesting. And he contacted him and said, do you want to work for the SS doing a research for us? And then he got Himmler interested in it in like 35 or 36, and they started giving him money. Remember, he wasn't a trained academic. He was a bright guy, but the stuff he was writing back was, was not terribly scientific. It was very speculative. And with this SS money, knowing that what they really wanted was proof that there was an Ur-Aryan or Indo-Aryan religion going on in Frankish, you know, France, Germany, that the Christians, the Catholic Church, wiped out or tried to wipe out by calling it heretical and witchcraft, right? Right. He, He doubled down on his research and produced this book called Lucifer's Court which says that Lucifer for the heretical sects at that time was really the God of light. And you needed light as well as darkness. And they believed in a Manichaean kind of pre-Christian religion or Gnostic religion. And they were into nature and forests and they, and, and um, earth mothers. And it was this beautiful Proto-Germanic culture and religion and they were blonde and blue-eyed, probably. And then these, the evil Catholic Church came along. And he's not, he wasn't particularly anti-Semitic. It was the SS which always threw the Jews into this and tried to wipe them out by claiming they were witches. And if you kill witches, you, it's, you kill two birds with one stone, according to Himmler and Heydrich and Dare and these Nazi leaders, because you destroy the religion and culture that the witches represented, supposed witches, really well-meaning pagan earth mothers but you also can't have any children. So they had all these crazy theories, which I talk about in that chapter about how the Catholic church tried to basically carry out genocide against the Germanic people by calling them Satanists. Right.
0: Or witches. <laughs> like you had, I even started his own division. Him did SS witch, passed, division.
1: A witch division yeah. to research all. He believed that one of his own ancestors, had been burned at the stake for believing in this kind of paganism. And so he wanted to find all the cases where it happened. And here's where it gets really interesting. So this is chapter six, where I'm just trying to reconstruct why they would be doing these kind of things and where the ideas come from and why would they sponsor this out guy. But some of the same SS leaders who would work for like, um, um, Franz Alfred Zix, um, and some others who would work for the ideological, um, basically doing opposition research, including anti-Semitic work, kind of working with the people who wanted to carry out the final solution, These like Eichmann. They were also in the witch division because Heydrich, remember, he was more pragmatic. It's like, well, if this did happen, this gives us uh, insight into how the Jews, who are always a minority in the shadows, right, mm-hmm. manipulate Uh, mainstream Christian institutions to commit genocide against Aryans. So we can use this to understand what they're doing against us today and possibly flip the script on them. So it wasn't just even bizarre, far-right, crazy theories like I watch the History Channel, I think ancient aliens are cool. They actually thought they could operationalize some of this research to figure out how the Jews were manipulating the Masons, the Communist Party, the banks, the Catholic Church in the 30s to destroy Aryan civilization and how they could flip that back at them. Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason they committed the Holocaust. I'm just saying that what sounds like a bizarre sidelight had some real-world repercussions in reinforcing, in some ways, their views towards Jews as this kind of Shadow, shadowy world conspiracy, you know,
0: right? Like it's this overarching
1: conspiracy, new world new world order run by Jews, Jewish. But Chinese. it's it, it um,
0: is interesting that book I saw a tie in because there was also this other character, Julius Evola, who talked about the grail mystery as well. And he was also sponsored by I think it was the S oh, well, somebody. I'm you
1: sorry. want to connect this to the present, so it's yes. Yeah. Was so fascist and so racist and so driven by a fascination with the with the Grail and Indo-Aryan racial purity that Mussolini got tired of him and said, "Yeah, I'm a fascist, but we're we're Italy after all. We're not that into the really racist, crazy stuff that the Germanic fascists believe in. Why don't you leave me alone? I'm simplifying here." So he goes to Germany and says, you really believe in this idea of an international racial utopia from Japan through northern India and the Brahmins to the Persians in Germany? Can I work with you? And I've seen the, the archival documents. The SS is like, well, he does sound a little nuts, but this is the kind of stuff that Himmler and other people that give us orders like. Why don't we let him use our library and see what he comes up with? So he starts working in the SS libraries, remember the SS have confiscated all this stuff from occult groups. They don't burn it like they burn, you know, Huckleberry Finn or Jewish literature or Einstein. They actually keep it and read it. So while Vola's working in these SS archives and libraries, he writes a bunch of bizarre books about Aryan civilization and and traditionalist philosophy and going back to a pre you know industrial society. The S is like, this isn't so bad. It's kind of the stuff that a lot of us believe in. And then after the war, he somehow manages, despite all of this, right? Despite even Mussolini thinking he's a little too out there. And the SS saying, okay, fine. He becomes his leader of the new right in the 60s and 70s in Europe, in Italy and other parts of Europe, proto fascist And then Steve Bannon. Starts quoting him. I don't yeah, know.
0: If there you it. go. No, I'm familiar with that. It's a lot of the yeah, alt right. So Ebola's uh, up there in the top ten of writers in the alt right.
1: I'm not. I'm not making this up. Like, there's a clear connection between the late 19th century stuff that a lot of alt right, far right people frustrated with modernity, industrialization, immigration, open borders, multiculturalism, feminism, liberalism, socialism. We're all starting to say we need to get back to right. That right. seems to. Help the Nazis get a third of the vote, right? Let's give the Germans credit. Never gets more than 37% with 40% unemployment. If America had 40% unemployment right now, would the far right in our country get 30% of the vote? I think they would. So so let's just be aware that these ideas are always there, percolating. They're fine when they're in comic books and movies. Right. But when they become your worldview, we can see again what happens, right? Need these Absolutely. Are operationalized. Absolutely.
0: That's a almost. That's just almost a perfect way to wrap it up because that's where we're at now. We're at this kind of period of destabilization, a lot of uh, uncertainty, public uncertainty, a lot of sociological issues. So people better be careful. Um, it's just great to talk with you. I, there's so much more in this book, people. You got to go get this book. I mean, we barely you know covered half of it, but uh, and it's also fascinating that they thought that they were going to make a utopia in the East. That to me was also kind of like. Considering what really happened, it's just incredible. Anyway, one well, I
1: mean, thing about that that's interesting: part of their justification for reclaiming what they claim was ancient Germanic territory was collecting archaeological artifacts and forts and all this stuff, and ignoring mainstream archaeology, right? Which would have I mean, said, actually, this looks Slavic, or we are not sure what it is. They constantly read into it ancient or Ur-Aryan realities to the point where there is that spear of Koval I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. So there's no evidence, actually, that Hitler cared about the spear of destiny that pierced Christ's side, other than it was valuable and he wanted to move it from Austria to, to Nuremberg with the other crown jewels. Right. What is clear is that Himmler, Rosenberg, and other Nazi leaders thought that there's, there's a spear of Koval, which I guess Slavs claim was an ancient Slavic kind of totem, and they thought was an ancient Germanic one. So, again, think about this huge modern industrial war machine justifying enslaving and murdering Slavs and Jews by saying, well, the archaeological evidence, and remember Himmler was a chicken farmer, he had no background in archaeology or carbon dating, right, is, is because we've decided these artifacts are Germanic, right, or these... So, again, this is where it starts to get operationalized. Once you leave the realm of of actual facts, science, empiricism, anything can be argued, right? And if you have the power when you're arguing those ideas, you can then operationalize them.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, that that's why this background before the World War II is so important, because it didn't just come out of nowhere. It, did, it could be just like you said, it became opera, operationalized. Um, Dr. Kurlander, where, where's the best place for people to buy your book? And is there anything I'd miss, anything you'd like to add before we wrap up?
1: No, I mean, obviously there's a lot of things we could have talked about, including the war. But um, uh, we've gotten into a lot of the, the core arguments and the evidence and uh, ways of – and by the way, this is really important. Why is history relevant? Why do we do it? Why do even my medieval and Renaissance colleagues or people who study you know early modern Japan – because we are trying to better understand the present, right? The the point of studying history is not antiquarianism, it's to see how patterns develop then so we understand why things happen now. And And I hope that people, if they go get the book, think about the ways that it helps us better understand the world uh, we live in today. Um, and now don't just get fascinated because they read about this in Captain America and Aaron von Strucker had a cool cat cool castle in the in recent marvel movies right there is there are larger points here which you've been very good at drawing out so yeah uh, amazon.com uh okay. it's available in paperback and yale university press uh yup.com you can order it either of those places it comes in a, in a few days and uh, uh again thank you very much for having me
0: thank you doctor i really appreciate it great book i'm fascinating people who Go buy this book. It's worth reading a couple times. I'm probably going to look through it again on some of the stuff we missed. But, again, the name of the author is Dr. Eric Kurlander, K-U-R-L-A-N-D-E-R. And the book title is Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich,
1: published 2017. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you, William. All right. Take care.